there. I'm Dr. Gabe Lowe, and welcome to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. This is a show that is less interested in answering life's difficult questions and more interested in the process of wrestling with them. This podcast is a forum to celebrate the messiness that makes us human. It is a place to invite the unanswerable questions because often it is precisely these types of questions that push us to dig deeper, to think harder, and to refine our approach to life. So, if you get to the end of the episode and you still have lots of questions, then I've done my job. I invite you on the pursuit of no answers. My first guest is someone I'm super excited to talk with. He's someone who's played a major role in my life over the past several years. He was my advisor and mentor throughout my graduate school training. He played an instrumental role in my relationship with my wife. And when I was developing this podcast, he was the first person I thought to ask. He wears many hats, including licensed psychologist, pastor, and associate professor of psychology and pastoral counseling. He is the editor of the Journal of Psychology and Theology. He teaches and speaks internationally, maintains a small clinical practice, and serves on the board of directors for Joyous Scholars, a nonprofit organization that seeks to inspire and prepare students from families of at-risk communities in Fullerton to succeed through higher education. Besides all that, he is one of the most humble and thoughtful people I know. Please enjoy my interview with Dr. David Wang. All right. Well, thank you, Dave. I am so happy that you're joining us, and it's a real pleasure and honor. I'm really excited that you're my first guest. Um, so to jump right into it, the topic that you picked for us is grief, specifically grief as a means to pursue meaning in difficult life circumstances. And you wrote about grief as it may come up uh, with this little thing called COVID. (laughs) So here's where I'd like to start to get to know you a little bit. And I think to also contextualize our conversation for today. Um, So you're a psychologist, pastor, professor, researcher, husband, father. There's probably other hats that you wear that I did not mention. (laughs) Maybe pick a couple of those roles and talk about how COVID has impacted uh, your roles in those areas um, and how you approach your responsibilities. Yeah, certainly. Um, You know, speaking more as like a researcher and as a trauma psychologist, in some ways COVID has been um, opening a lot of opportunities to um, kind of leverage some of my research background um, to speak into lots of different kinds of contexts. So in some ways, uh, work has gotten a lot busier ever since uh, the season of COVID has started. And um, speaking also as uh, uh, into my role as a pastor and the pastor of spiritual formation of a a small young uh, church uh, called One Life City Church uh, out in Fullerton, California. And it's really kind of uh, reshaped the whole landscape of uh, my work as a pastor. Um, this idea of us um, not being able to physically congregate, um, maintaining social distance, uh, doing services online, um, and just really struggling through the question, uh, what does it even mean to be a pastor uh, in a context such as this? How do we pastor people when we can't see them physically? Um, and uh, how do we walk alongside and accompany people 
in their varied responses because COVID arguably is stressful for pretty much everyone. Um, all of us have lost freedoms. Uh, a lot of us have lost a lot of, uh, a lot more than just certain freedoms. And um, depending on our personality and a lot of other factors, we also have a unique footprint when it comes to how we respond to difficult situations. Like some people want to take it, tackle it head on. Other people kind of, you know, um, start uh, checking out and isolating themselves, even over and above just a lot of the uh, kind of isolation, social isolation or social distancing measures at this time. And uh, as a pastor, it's just really challenging because we have to, uh, you know, meet people where they're at. And sometimes it's, you know, some people might really need someone to really reach out after them and kind of run after them and seek them out. And others, when they um, kind of isolate a bit, uh, they really need some time alone. And maybe running after them and seeking them out might be seen as a little too intrusive and not very helpful at all. So, you know, as a um, counselor, as a pastor, as a person who just wants to care for people, um, it's also a very challenging time to discern what might be best uh, for everyone as everyone kind of goes off in their different directions as a result mm-hmm. of the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So as you're talking about it, you know, it's affecting all of us. And so everybody's sort of having a different way of coping, a different way of adjusting to it. Um, and so, you know, I can imagine that for some people, grief is very present, especially with sadly uh, the loss of so many lives in our country. Um, but I think for other people, maybe they're not so quite in touch with grief. Uh, you know, maybe they might feel, as you mentioned, stressed or annoyed or frustrated, especially if they're trying to, you know, deal with kids, you know, doing Zoom from home. Um, and so, you know, how did you pick grief as a topic for today and also for your your article? Um, and how do you sort of uh, conceptualize grief as we're dealing with COVID? Yeah, great question. Um, I chose grief because um, I, I've heard it said one time, uh, you know, I'm a trauma psychologist and I you know, do therapy, uh, I, I do counseling with trauma survivors, do research on trauma and so on and so forth. And someone explained it to me, you know, back when I was still training as a psychologist that uh, all trauma therapy is grief therapy, you know, and because when we encounter trauma, there's almost always some form of loss. And um, COVID-19 certainly qualifies as a mass traumatic incident. I think that everyone in the world can relate to and we're uh, in the middle of right now. And when it comes to loss, um, I know many of us are, uh, you know, many of us might be struggling with uh, very concrete forms of loss, especially those who have lost loved ones, you know, and others who have lost jobs um, uh, or other things that, you know, we've lost that we can, you know, put our hands around. Um, and uh, loss uh, is something that can take many different shapes and forms. And even for those of us who didn't necessarily lose a job or lose a loved one or, you um, that we uh, also likely are struggling with other forms of loss, but uh, those forms of loss might be a little bit more uh, symbolic uh, in nature. So, for example, like a you know a loss of um, a dream, 
you know, a loss of goals that we had for the upcoming year, for the upcoming two years, uh, or maybe even something somewhat concrete, those parents, uh, those of us who are parents, the loss of uh, some hours in the day where we got to be free, uh, apart from our children, as much as we love them. Um, we have lost our sense of routine, uh, our schedules, uh, as, as have our children and everyone else. Um, we've lost our ability to physically congregate. Uh, we've lost our sense of con uh, our sense of control. Uh, I think we would love to be able to uh, have a, a, a grasp of a solid end date of all of this. You know that, and that's can be so helpful when it comes to coping through this, uh, a difficult situation. To know that it will end one day, and to know when that day it'll end and to kind of count down the days until that and and again this that's just not something that we can we, we have available to us you know so uh, we, we know it started but we don't know when it's going to end and we don't know what twists and turns might uh, be in store for us if uh, lockdowns will continue if there's another spike and and uh and these other forms of loss like you know a loss of our sense of control and understanding of uh, our future um those are legitimate forms of loss as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I felt like maybe it might be helpful for us to talk about grief is um, a lot of times uh, we don't grieve very well. You know, mm -hmm. we as, and I would suggest that we as a collective culture here in America, um, mm -hmm. it's not in our, uh, it's not a very prominent, does not hold a prominent place in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, there isn't really much of, you know, by means of uh, a language of grief uh, within kind of our typical vernacular, you know, here in North America. And that includes not just, you know, general kind of culture here, but also um, kind of Christian subcultures as well. We just don't have uh, many tools and much language to um, give us that scaffolding if we happen to find ourselves uh, in a place of grief. Mm -hmm. And because, and you know, when those two uh, things interact and create tension, this idea that, you know, I'm in a place uh, where I'm experiencing loss and, and I might need to go through a, a rather complicated grief process uh, and prolonged grief process. And, and I, if I'm in that uh, situation and on the other side, I don't really have the tools to know how to navigate that, uh, neither do the people around me, that potentially creates tension. And, um, and I would suggest that, you know, behind a lot of the suffering that's going on right now, um, I think a lot of it is born out of that tension of like, I'm, I'm in grief, but I either don't know I'm in grief or I don't know how to grieve or how to navigate this grief process. Sure. Yeah. And perhaps COVID is kind of the convenient example that that entry point into the grief process for most of us. Uh, COVID is really just one of the entry points. Uh, there have probably been many others uh, even before that we weren't super aware of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful. You know, I think when we hear the word grief, you know, we think about those big losses, like, you know, I'm moving away or somebody passed away or, um, you know, I lost a job. Um, but I think what you're pointing out is a lot of maybe some of those intangibles or um, immaterial sort of losses. And I think you're also sort of highlighting, you know, a sort of 
more cultural phenomenon where, you know, we either as uh, Americans or Westerners or churchgoers, um, you know, whichever sort of subgroup you sort of find yourself in, maybe you don't have a whole lot of models for what grief looks like. Um, and maybe another thing to sort of throw into the mix is the the thing that you mentioned of maybe our time being compressed. And so, you know, parents at home might be seeing, thinking, you know, okay, Dave, uh, that's all fine and dandy, but I don't have time to grieve. So, you know, what do you think, um, you know, gets in our way when we, when we, you know, when we're at this point where it's like, okay, I, I recognize that I have this need or, you know, I, I know it's good for me or, you know, maybe I'd like to try it, um, but I don't even know where to start. Yeah. Um, man, I think there's uh, just several uh, potential kind of uh, directions we can take in terms of, you know, what makes it difficult to grieve. I think you touched on several of them. I think, to start, I think a lot of people don't know how to do it. You know, they don't have the language, the framework. I think you also mentioned a lot of people just don't feel like they have the time to do it. You know, they're still kind of in a very overwhelming situation and they don't have the luxury to just kind of sit there and grieve whatever that looks like, you know. And, uh, and I would even say that uh, there's also cultural considerations where, um, you know, here in America, I feel, you know, now more than ever before, uh, it's so clear to see these kind of tropes of like, you know, America is about winning, you know, America is about succeeding. It's about pulling up ourselves, pulling ourselves up by our bootstrap, you know? So, um, so if there is a language of grief, it's almost cast in this framework that is temporary or momentary where like, you know, I'm down for this moment but I'm going to rise again and I'm going to come out stronger and I'm going to win and it's going to turn out even better at the end than it was at the beginning, you know? And it's almost like that's the framework that we have to kind of model ourselves and fit our narrative into. Um, um, but the harsh reality, and I think as psychologists and, and counselors and pastors, a lot of us might be, uh, those of us, those professions might be a little bit more in touch with these realities because we're walking alongside people and their real narratives, uh, not the, the um, kind of imaginary ones that in real life, uh, sometimes that works out and it's great when it does, but a lot of times it doesn't. You know, sometimes we suffer loss and we suffer setbacks and there isn't necessarily a happy ending aside from us just saying we survived, you know? And there might be even other situations where people don't survive. And that's really more or less, at least on this side of heaven, the end of the story. You know, how do we make sense? Um, how do we make meaning of, of those situations? Um, do they belong as well? And my suggestion or my um, firm belief is absolutely. Um, this has been part of the human condition, the human experience. And it's not something that we should rationalize or just kind of push away, even though they are uh, quite mysterious and perplexing uh, for us to go into, um, I think uh, they shouldn't be ignored or avoided. Yeah. So when you talk about walking alongside people in their grief, you know, I know that you do that personally and professionally as a pastor and as a uh, psychologist. Um, 
how how do you or you know first let me start by asking you know have you run into people who push back on this idea of grief you know when you're suggesting hey i think you might uh be going through this process and if so you know how how do you meet somebody where they're at when they're not ready to grieve yeah uh, great question and in some ways um grief um mirrors like the same a similar process that uh, people will take um, when they work with um, people who are struggling with substance abuse. You know? um, and there's, you know, the, the greatest challenge is always those initial phases uh, that have to, uh, like uh, Kubler-Ross has this um, uh, very insightful and helpful model for uh, potential stages of grief and maybe we can talk about it a bit later but you know the the earliest stage of grief uh, according to her um her framework is denial um so i think the the wisdom of the of alcoholics anonymous and their approach um to treating substance abuse is how they cut to the chase and they address the denial like right at the very beginning you know so in an AA group People will go around and introduce themselves and say, you know, hi, my name is Dave. Hi, my name is Gabe, and I'm an alcoholic. You know, and from the very get-go, you just disarm any potential resistance, any potential like, oh, you know, maybe it's not that big of an issue. I don't really struggle with it. Maybe this is for other people, but not for me. And that's that's an issue that is uh, one of the greatest challenges in treating. Uh, you know, treating substance abuse or any kind of alcohol abuse or something, anything to that extent. Um, it's this idea of, you know, an individual is often struggling between uh, recognizing and accepting the reality of the problem with rationalizing in that it may not be that bad, you know, and oftentimes you'll encounter situations where they're still struggling and they're not fully convinced that they have the problem, but literally everyone that lives with them is thoroughly convinced that there is a problem. And no matter how much evidence you can bring, it's still not, not necessarily sufficient to kind of go, you know, poke a hole through that kind of armor. And in a similar way, when it comes to grief, I think one of the most formidable um, kind of uh, challenges or resistances is denial. You know, this idea of, okay, well, you know, either someone might say well you know maybe technically that's a loss but that's not that big of a loss i know uh, oftentimes people will compare their loss with someone else's loss who's, that's perceived to be more significant or more severe and they'll use that as like a a reason to support this idea that well that person might deserve care or that person has a loss that um, counts, whereas mine is lesser and mine doesn't count, so therefore mine's not a big deal. But the reality is that loss is loss, and suffering is suffering, and you know someone else's suffering, as great or not great as that might be, um, it's still valid, and it doesn't invalidate mine. You know, it's not a zero-sum game. You know, um, some people, on the other hand, might um, be resistant to the idea of grief because they want to see themselves as strong or want to see themselves as an individual that overcomes their circumstance that isn't a victim to it. Um, 
And with that, I can certainly uh, empathize and you know respect and honor. And, and sometimes taking that approach um, can actually be a very helpful approach when you're in the midst of a very overwhelming situation. It's true, you may not have the luxury to just process emotionally and, you know, and feel all the feelings that you need because the, all that energy really needs to be allocated towards uh, meeting the needs of the situation. So for a time, certainly, even though perhaps a part of us needs to grieve, it certainly is a, um, you know, sometimes advisable to kind of put that grief process on pause temporarily while you attend to things that you need to attend to. Um, I think uh, what I would say to that would be um, that, you know, if we're in a situation and we do need to grieve, um, if we, that we can't actually put it on pause indefinitely. You know, we can't put it on pause for a while, but if it's something that we kind of neglect or just try to cast off altogether, um, believe me, grief will find its way uh, back into the fore. And when, if and, uh, and when it does, uh, when we're trying to avoid it and push it down, usually when it shows up, it's going to be uh, less within our control and also more potentially kind of harmful to us. Um, so in some ways, grief can also be seen as a preventative process that helps ensure um, just our well-being and our thriving in the long run. Yeah. So um, I'm going to apologize to... Uh, my listeners, because uh, there's probably going to be a lot of psychologists on this show, <laughs> just because of <laughs> the people that uh, that I uh, have in my circle. And so there's probably going to be a lot of psycho mumbo jumbo going back and forth. But, um, you know, from from what I know of you, Dave, um, you know, I know that as a pastor, as a psychologist, um, and, you know, just as a person that, uh, you know, you speak from a place of experience that this isn't just all theory. This isn't just all, you know, models and Kubler-Ross. Um, so, you know, how do you think that you have learned to grieve well over the years? How, how do you feel like that has sort of entered into your own language, your own vocabulary? Yeah, I think the way um, I have learned uh, practically in real life about grief. It comes from two sources. I think, you know, one source is uh, a lot of my, you know, clinical work with trauma survivors and just walking alongside other people uh, and seeing just uh, the different diversity of expressions and processes that people follow as they grieve. But as you also alluded to, um, you know, I think where it starts for me is just my own grief process, you know, and when I think of well, what has informed me about grief through my own experiences, I think um, my answer to that would be just all the years of my life where I just really sucked at grieving, you know, and all the suffering and pain that came out of that, um, and self-blame and shame that um, that uh, that fundamentally came out of. Uh, me totally misunderstanding that I was in a grief process and having uh, and believing uh, believing certain kind of um, unrealistic uh, having unexpected unrealistic expectations on myself and on my situation and 
And for that to just kind of prolong uh, you know, a season of pain and difficulty uh, for me. And, and specifically, um, when I was younger, I had this belief, and I think I picked this up in my kind of um, church religious uh, upbringing, you know, this idea that as long as I have the right beliefs in my head, you know, as long as I uh, thought the right thoughts, you know, as long as I understood the big picture purpose of my, you know, of my situation, that, you know, everything would be great. And I can just jump straight to feeling happy. You know, there's, um, you know, James chapter one, count it all joy when you experience various forms of suffering, you know, trials, because, you know, trials, um, you know, produces steadfastness in your faith, you know, so, so there's this idea that like, okay, this is, you know, James, it's very clear, you know, fairly black and white here, count it all joy, because it's gonna, you know, so now that I have that insight, you know, even though I'm in the very messiness of this grief process of this loss and just grappling with this stuff, I had this expectation for so many of my years that as long as I knew and understood that cognitive insight, that, well, I should look at it as joy because it's going to strengthen me in the long run, that, you know, just knowing that insight, having the right beliefs, it was almost understood to be this free ticket that would let me kind of bypass all the emotional stages and all the process of grief and just jump straight to joy, you know, and this idea of, and this expectation that, you know, if I wasn't in a perpetual state of joy and happiness and contentment, that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. Maybe I didn't believe the word of God, or maybe I didn't have like the right thinking or the right, you know, approach to this. So you take the complexities of a very nuanced and complicated and in many ways, oftentimes tragic situation. And then you just oversimplify it into, well, I just need to have the right belief. And then that will just bypass all this stuff. And I'm just going to go straight to joy. And when it doesn't happen, it's not that I would question the whole premise of that um, oversimplified understanding or model, but rather I would question myself. You know, so it's not a problem with this whole, you know, belief system, but rather it was a problem with me. Maybe I didn't believe it well enough. I didn't yeah. live it out enough. So what ends up happening is not only am I back to square one with all the mess that I am, you know, needing to handle because it's right in front of me in my life, but um, that hasn't changed, you know, because I haven't done really anything productive <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, to actually, you know, address that or even cope with it. Um, but now on top of that, now I have self-blame and shame. So not only am I struggling, but it's also my fault, even though in reality, uh, it, uh, for the most part, isn't. Sort of a double whammy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I can, I can certainly relate to a lot of what you said, you know, growing up in church and, and you hear a lot of those messages of, you know, rejoicing and sort of, um, yeah, exactly what you said of sort of making or finding that silver lining uh, in, in the hardship. And, you know, this is, I think, something that uh, will come up a lot in this podcast of wrestling with very difficult topics or things that make us uncomfortable. Um, this sort of 
you know, pendulum effect where, you know, we can either be on one side or the other. It's very hard to find ourselves in the middle. Um, you know, why, why do you think that is, you know, that, that on the one hand, it's, it's so easy to just either go full stock into, you know, just being happy all the time um, versus like wallowing and self-pitying and just sort of feeling stuck or isolated? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, and, and I think that's exactly right. I feel like um, that is kind of behind a lot of our fears when we um, react uh, in the ways that we just talked about. This idea that, you know, if I don't just count it all joy, you know, even, even the crap, um, count that joy, then the temptation or the fear is that I'm just going to go all the way to the other side of the pendulum. And then just be in this perpetual state of self-pity and helplessness and hopelessness and, you know, kind of this place of hopeless profundity where I just get depressed more, you know, over and over again. And, and I mean, and you do see that among people who have, you know, say, you know, major depressive disorder. And we're absolutely not talking about that. You know, that's, you know, legitimate concern. But I think the fallacy of this idea is this whole thing, I, it's understanding that it's either or. If I don't go all the way over here, then it must mean that the only other option I have, you know, in all of God's good earth and reality is for me to go all the way on the other side. And to not um, re- realize that um, most of life is actually paradoxical, you know, and so much even of the Christian faith is paradoxical. And we try to uh, turn something, when we try to turn something paradoxical into uh, black and white, um, it's, uh, there's usually some kind of damage done to whatever we're uh, talking about. You know? uh, and to be fair, um, this is actually reflected in our biology. Uh, our brains are actually wired a paradox and you can make an argument that this is by god's design so that we can actually interact with and, and make some meaning of the nature of reality which is paradox as well um so for example uh, human brains are um we process emotions we process uh, information in parallel we don't do it serially we don't do it like you know this co- you know this leads to that and then that leads to that in one kind of uh serial you know uh, the cause and effect chain, uh, the mind actually processes multiple threads, multiple emotions, all at the same time, all simultaneously. So um, from an emotional standpoint, it's not only possible, but it's you know, probable that we experience multiple emotions all at the same time. We can feel happy and sad both at the same time. And that's not only not weird, but that's common. That's what we do normally by default. I mean, take, for example, a paradoxical situation such as um, a loved one who was really suffering during their last year, uh, last moments in life, a loved one finally passing away. That's a paradoxical situation because on one hand, you know, after such an individual passes, of course, I'm going to feel sad. A part of me feels sad because this is a loved one and they're, they're gone and won't see them, at least on this side of heaven anymore. And at the same time, I'm sure part of us might also feel content and, uh, you know, pleased that they're not suffering anymore, you know, that they're in a better place right now. 
And, you know, when someone's in a grief process over a situation like that, um, they're experiencing multiple emotions all at the same time. But when we think of this from kind of a, you know, black and white, um, you know, everything needs to be resolved in a clean way, it's tempting to say, well, I can only feel sad or happy because, yet, you know, they're going to cancel each other out. But in reality, uh, life doesn't work that way and our brains actually don't work that way. Our, our brains, uh, you know, ironically are, uh, they're not ironically, but they are um, very much uh, shaped and functions in a way that mirrors reality. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. You know, I, I haven't heard it quite put like that in terms of our brain being made specifically for this sort of wrestling process. Um, you know, I think another thing I'd like to bring into the conversation uh, going, you know, further into the land of psychology, um, you know, is maybe some of the pleasure pain, pain principles uh, and cognitive dissonance of, you know, when we encounter these paradoxical ideas, there is that tension and there is that discomfort. And, you know, when I'm thinking about the already uncomfortable experience of, of dealing with grief to then layer on sort of this additional discomfort of dealing with paradoxical tension, uh, it just sort of feels like, you know, our, our biology, even if it's maybe made for that, is telling us to sort of pull away that this is dangerous or this is uncomfortable, that, you know, it's mm -hmm. also sending off some of those you know, signals to the brain. So how do you sort of reconcile that push-pull that comes of, you know, maybe our brains are wired this way, but also, you know, there's sort of this runaway, sort of this fight-or-flight sort of uh, signal going off as well? Yeah, good question. Um, like one, one response would be that, um, again, just to validate what you mentioned, that, you know, to go into paradox, and to go into the mystery of you know reality in the world and even the, the paradox of ourselves it's you know especially in the short run it's not a fun place to go you know it's very unraveling it's um not very secure it's um you just don't get that sense of closure or you know i i, I got my head wrapped around this situation you know um, instead, it's, you know, you know, questions are left off unanswered. There's just this tension of, well, I see everything, but I don't know how to reconcile. And I don't know how, how everything kind of fits together. And when we do that, um, when I encourage people to go in that direction, um, really, we're looking at the long term, you know, um, because, and, and because in the long run, um, I believe that taking that approach you know, is really the pathway towards um, becoming fully who we are, maturing as spiritual beings, maturing as human beings, uh, developing a sense of resilience. Um, these are all a building, building blocks for us to cultivate, you know, this sense of resilience and steadfastness. Um, and, and in order to get there, we have to face the chaos. Right. Um, if I were to just, you know, perpetually follow this kind of short-term, near-term vision of, okay, going into the mystery, going into the paradox is bad because it makes me feel uncomfortable. 
I mean, what is the alternative there? Well, I'm going to have to just retreat to this oversimplified black and white world where everything makes sense to me, even though the world really doesn't make sense and it's not supposed to make sense. So in order for me to retreat into that black and white world, I'm doing some damage in my capacity to relate to what's actually going on, not only in myself, but in the world and in others. And in the long run, if I can own, the only way I can cope is by retreating to that oversimplified black and white world, it's gonna be like a prison, you know, where um, I can only function if everything goes according to this predetermined plan uh, or this predetermined kind of formula. And as we grow older and we experience other cultures, other situations, other people, we, it, everything starts to see like, we start seeing everything like a threat, you know, it's because it's not gonna confirm these, pre, these uh, conceived notions that we're holding onto and we're kind of relying on to cope. And over time, we either, you know, jump into the dissonance even more, you know, uh, and or it's like it's like we live in that we create a prison for ourselves and the more we live it's like the prison becomes smaller and smaller because there's just we have to jump through more mental hoops we have to really just uh, shrink down those uh, the kinds of experiences and people that we expose ourselves to in order to preserve this kind of black and white world where everything makes sense to us mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. But in the long run, we kind of have to blow all that up. <laughs> so that ironically, when you know the chaos of the world happens in the future, we're actually equipped to navigate. We don't have to rationalize it. We totally. Could, um, there's a, there's room for wisdom mm -hmm. in navigating those those uh, dynamics, even when even those that we've never encountered before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the word that comes to mind with what you just said is, or I guess the term is uh, delayed gratification. Um, and, you know, I think this is sort of a good segue into the second part of the equation uh, in terms of, you know, I don't want to just talk about grief, but also the meaning making that you're sort of uh, pointing to. And, you know, I think that's sort of, um, you know, maybe part of that delayed gratification of the the long-term picture um, you know i can imagine a lot of people might be approaching grief and, and thinking oh it's not productive or it's not i don't feel like i'm getting anything out of it and it might just sort of feel like this uh like you, what you said that that sort of in the moment sort of feeling um so so where does meaning making come into because i you know i think that uh, sounds attractive and it definitely sounds a lot more productive than just swallowing. Um, you know, how, how do you sort of conceptualize grief and meaning making? Yeah, great question. Um, well, to start, um, what it is not is this idea that I talked about earlier of, okay, well, I have this big picture pie in the sky principle and understanding of this principle of how this could all work out and you know for my good and um you know that kind of meaning can still be helpful can still be encouraging but again it's not this free pass free ticket to skip all the you know all the process of grief so i can just jump straight to like i make it's not a shortcut exactly and mm -hmm. usually when we get to those principles they're still true mm -hmm. but we we don't get there until we've finished living through it. You know, those are principles that we'll arrive at naturally uh, when we look back at our lives. 
and we go, okay, now that I have the luxury of looking back at our lives after I survived this and kind of navigated all this, um, I can see this principle at play, you know, that this thing made me stronger and I persevered through it and maybe some good, you know, came out of this. Um, but, um, but as I'm still in the mess, you know, as I'm still in the middle of it moving forward, um, meaning making uh, the role that it plays is, um, so when I think of grief, um, and this is tied to any kind of emotion, you know, emotions, if, you know, one way to understand an emotion is it's a form of communication, you know, so when we're angry, and we're visibly angry, you can kind of tell when someone's angry just by looking at their face. Um, sometimes that communication that is uh, by design uh, behind the emotion, it's really intended to communicate to somebody else, like, hey, you're really ticking me off and you better stop doing this or I'm either gonna like attack you or do something that you're not gonna like, you know? And um, without even saying that, when someone looks at that emotion on our face, something important is being communicated. When it comes to grief, I think the same principle applies, except that the audience oftentimes is really ourselves. Mm. So it's almost as if um, a part of us is trying to communicate to another part of us mm. something important that we're going through right now. So one way to look at this idea of, well, what does it mean for me to grieve well? Um, I think one answer to that question could be, well, you know, whatever I am trying to say to myself, whatever I am observing in myself, I am listening well to that. Mm. Um, so for example, I'm, if um, I'm in the season of sadness and, and maybe even mild depression, you know, after losing somebody, uh, that, that really was so important to me. And I'm just in this season of despondency, you know. Um, part of what it means to grieve well there is to listen thoroughly to the and witness um, all that needs to be witnessed and seen um, behind that emotion of sadness. And oftentimes you can find, you'll almost always find just these nuggets of truth. Um, that are so help, healthy for us to observe and to validate and to, to witness and to affirm. Uh, so for example, a lot of times when I walk alongside others, and even when I walk alongside myself in my grief, um, say someone lost a loved one, maybe what needs to be heard is, man, you're really sad about this loss. And what that sadness is communicating is just how much this person meant to you. Mm. So maybe behind the part of the intention behind this emotion is that you're trying to communicate to yourself and you're also communicating to others just how valuable, how valued this individual is. You know? um, so seeing that, that you know, if this insight is true, um, what are ways that we can communicate that even more clearly through other means um, so that not only yourself, but the people around you just really get that message. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and believe it or not, when we take an approach like that, um, a lot of times the depression just naturally subsides. It's not like they're, you know, happy about the situation, but it's, it's like the, the purpose behind that depression, someone actually heard it. And because someone heard it, uh, the purpose of that emotion is now fulfilled and it can move on, you know? And, you know, that approach is just, you know, by and large, so much more effective <laughs> um, than the typical approach that we follow, which is, hey, babe, you shouldn't feel sad. You know, um, look at all the things that you should be grateful about. You know, like you got all these good things for you. You know, Jesus died on the cross for you. Mm-hmm. And that person's in heaven now. And, you know, you shouldn't feel sad. You know, um, I, I've never met anyone who, in response to someone telling them that they shouldn't feel sad, just auto- automatically, magically, like, oh, thanks for telling me that. I never knew. And because you told me that, and because of that, you know, profound insight that you shared, all of a sudden, I'm not sad anymore. I feel great. Like, that ne- almost never <laughs> happens. Yeah. <laughs> but that's still like what we all default to, right? Totally. Yeah. And I think that's helpful. You know, I think that when we think about, you know, quote unquote, meaning making, you know, we're expecting this super insightful, you know, light coming through the clouds, like super existential answer. And sometimes I think the answer is just this person meant a lot to me. Yeah. Uh, and we don't even, you know, stop to hear that message or that meaning because uh, maybe we're we're searching in the wrong place. Yeah. And even as, you know, simple as that sounds, I mean, it, if we go into it, especially if we get into the history and get into the, the meaning of that person's life in, that, in our lives, um, there's, it's usually soaked with, with a lot of meaning there. Totally. Yeah. So I can imagine, you know, in this self-help world that we live in, uh, there might be a temptation to sort of take what you're saying and say, okay, you know, I I, I need to grieve. Uh, I need to get through this. Uh, Meaning making is my uh, formula. So if I just sort of make meaning out of it, then I won't be so depressed. Um, And so I I want to get a little technical. So uh, hopefully listeners will stay with me and, um, you know, talk about maybe a a nuance between um, maybe resilience and post-traumatic growth, you know, resilience being um, the the coping skills that you have going through the process, whereas post-traumatic growth is sort of the experience of meaning making or other forms of growth that happens after the process is complete. So, um, you know, how do you, you know, is, is there a danger of treating meaning making like this sort of formula, um, you know, or is it sort of a necessary part of the process to sort of get us through um, or is it something that's waiting for us on the other side that we just have to like hold out for? Yeah. Or maybe it's a blend of both. <laughs> Good question. And you know, when it comes to grief, when it comes to finding meaning in our suffering, um, these are things in life, processes in life, that just don't fit into the mechanical, scientific cause and effect processes that we're accustomed to you know mm-hmm. so like that posture that you 
um, that you're hinting at just now, this idea of, well, you know, how do I just uh, leverage this, you know, and, you know, make my own meaning so that I can kind of, you know, you know, shape my inputs into this box so I can kind of manipulate my way into getting the desired outputs, you know, and, and there are situations in life where, you know, that kind of approach is like engine science and engineering. I mean, believe it or not, my, my first career was as an electrical engineer. I mean, I kind of uh, jumped around a lot um, before I uh, went into theology and pastoring and then um, kind of uh, framework in that world, uh, this kind of approach of inputs and outputs um, and how to kind of, you know, um, kind of manipulate our way to kind of maximize the out desired outputs. I think that's, uh, there's a lot of value in that approach, but uh, I, I find that that approach falls short when it comes to the grieving process and meaning making progress and um, process. And what I would say to this, uh, to this is that meaning is not something, it, it is as much, it is as much something that we find and make as it is something that finds us and makes us. Mm. So we certainly seek it, and to some extent we construct it, you know, uh, as we go. And that's kind of what uh, the process of grief kind of helps facilitate. But just as true, if not even more true, it's uh, meaning is something that finds us. You know, it shapes us. We're we're not, uh, and again, this is kind of American Western bias where we're always the actor and everyone else is like the, the, the recipient of our actions. You mm -hmm. know, see it in first person perspective. Yeah. But in reality, it's paradoxical. Not only are we acting on others, but other things are acting on us. You know, mm -hmm. we're the recipient as much as we are the um, initiator. And okay. One of the benefits of grief is that it helps us realign into that equilibrium where we're not the only one that's initiating and manipulating our world, but we're also very much interconnected and impacted by the world around us as well. And we have to adjust ourselves to the world as much as the world can adjust itself to us. Yeah. And so I think, you know, now we're sort of getting into the no answer territory. You know, this <laughs> podcast is uh, big questions, no answers. And, you know, we talked about the big questions and, you know, now you're sort of bringing up this no answer piece where, you know, post enlightenment, we love, uh, you know, scientific studies and being able to understand and being able to, uh, yeah, even things like post-traumatic growth, you know, that's sort of uh, a hot research topic. We love sort of setting up measures and, and testing things and figuring things out. Uh, but it sounds like experientially, you know, this process that you're uh, describing is sort of this mysterious thing that we can't always predict. We can't always uh, anticipate. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, so, so where does that leave us? You know, do we just have to sit around and wait for it or, or do we, you know, how, how do we sort of understand our relationship to meaning? Uh, cause it, it sounds like it's sort of this both and. Yeah. Good question. And you're absolutely right. I think it is, uh, it is absolutely, um, a both and. and um, 
And part of, I believe, um, the building blocks of character, virtue, maturity, however you define it, is this refined skill, this refined sense of being able to discern between those situations that are calling for me to uh, uh, step in and change and shape and speak into, um, that certain situations call for action, you know, call for me to respond. Mm-hmm. To distinguish between those situations in life that call us towards action and change, you know, so for us to either change ourselves or for us to change something in our situation, but for us to be the one initiating this change so that uh, something, uh, so that something in our circumstances change. Um, To distinguish between those situations from those other situations in life where we may have no business trying to change anything, you know, and um, perhaps our our response and our action is to accept the reality of what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, adjust ourselves accordingly. You know, so again, that kind of dance and interplay between us changing the world and the world adapting to us, and vice versa, the world changing us and us adapting to our situation. Um, I think there's, and especially, you know, those of us um, who grew up in the West, um, we largely have not come to grips with most of the reality of, you know, what we cannot change in the world um, and how much we're called to um, accept and receive. Um, And when I use the language of acceptance, it's not necessarily this idea that I'm happy about it. I'm just going to be passive and just accept anything that comes. Um, I mean, there are some Christian spiritual traditions, um, like you know, um, uh, pietist, you know, pietism, for example, um, that you know, kind of emphasize much more of like a quiet, um, you know, passivity in our spirituality. And there's a place for that. Um, and there's also more of a place for active spirituality, kind of more of like an Ignatian kind of perspective. Um, but the important thing to emphasize here is that we're not really advocating for one or the other, but rather we're advocating for flexibility and for wisdom to discern which side is appropriate. And I think a lot of pain and a lot of suffering is when there's a mismatch, when there's a situation where we really have no business, we have no control over changing. Uh, something in the world that that you know we can't change and yet we try to fit it into that mold of like okay what can I do to change this what can I do you know how can I kind of just stuff this into this narrative where you know I'm you know I'm winning and I'm going to come out here stronger um, when it's just not in the cards and how can I hold both of those realities and kind of flip and switch between those two um, depending on what is um necessary and what is congruent with uh, reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our conversation today has sort of focused on, you know, our individual 
um, sort of relationship to grief or our individual uh, relationship to meaning making. And I think that's sort of uh, the orientation that we have, as you mentioned, in the West, where, you know, we think of things uh, so much as, you know, we're the star of our show. Um, But, you know, I want to go back to that article that you wrote, um, because you highlight sort of the importance of community and sort of the role of uh, community or of what you mentioned as lament uh, uh, in the life of the church and in spiritual communities, or, you know, if you're not spiritual in just sort of the friends or support systems that you have. So, you know, how does that sort of come into the mix and um, you know, what's the sort of value and importance of that? Oh yeah. Great question. Um, When we take seriously um, things like grief, and lament, and we allow these things to kind of um, balance us out, you know, from the excesses of you know the other side. Um, that really shapes um, how we approach and how we live out um, community and relationships, and um, you know, in its most extreme form, you know, if we really just take that, you know, active life perspective of, you know, I'm just, you know, I can do anything in this world as long as I put my mind to it, kind of an idea. And the question isn't if, but like, how do I do it? You know, a lot of times our communities are going to take the form, and even this includes our spiritual communities as well, of, you know, I'm the purpose of my community and the purpose of this relationship, again, is to achieve a certain end. You know, so like I'm here to provide a a set of goods and services, you know, that you either will consume or enjoy, or I'm here to train you or coach you or to help you achieve this other purpose, you know, this higher goal. And you also get this mindset of like, you know, when people uh, mentor someone else, when they disciple someone else, it's like, I've got all the answers. And I'm just going to impart all my skills and all my answers to like fix your problems and to like train you in the proper technologies to follow so that you can manipulate your life circumstances to get your desired outcome. Not to say that there isn't a time and place for it, because it is, there is. But if that's all there is, um, I don't think that's a very meaningful and fulfilling community, you know, um, it's a very contractual kind of transactional kind of thing where, you know, my purpose in being, being in a relationship with you is uh, for some outcomes for something else, you know, um, other than the relationship itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I think of, you know, the side of grief and lament and of accepting reality, you know, that especially those realities that I cannot change. Um, and I'm kind of reminded of Reinhold Niebuhr's serenity prayer, you know, give, God give me the discernment between those two, you know, mm-hmm. um, accept the things that cannot change and to change the things that can. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think of community in that context, I'm really thinking more about accompaniment. I'm, I'm talking, I'm really thinking more about long-term accompaniment so if somebody companionship yeah uh, companionship uh, like i'm accompanying you in this Mm -hmm. journey i'm walking alongside you gotcha so if you're in grief or you're struggling my job isn't to give you the best advice to fix your problem 
You know, and a lot of times people come to psychologists and counselors looking for that, and we kind of frustrate them because we're also trained not to do that. You know, um, but um, but instead of me looking at you as a problem that needs to be fixed through ingenuity and you know technology, um, I see you as a human being. Um, and my role isn't to tell you the answer that you've never known before to fix your problems, because sometimes there is just no answer. Mm -hmm. The problems can't be fixed on this side of heaven, but rather my role is to walk alongside you and to bear witness. So, you know, questions like, what is that emotion communicating? Mm. As one who walks with you in the long run, I am, I'm here to listen and I'm here to listen well mm-hmm. and listen over time on um, those most important things that need to be heard. Mm-hmm. And the irony of it all is that by doing that, I in turn probably will actually be facilitating more effectively those outcomes that I want to be facilitating all along. Mm-hmm. You know, like, in terms of facilitating resilience, cultivating resilience, cultivating post-traumatic growth, um, you know, helping someone get to that point of meaning making where they can look back and have a clear sense, a clearer sense of the meaning of it all. I mean, it is it, actually through that mess, through that kind of, through this direction, that if we just look at that pure outcomes of it all is actually more conducive to those outcomes. Yeah, and as we uh, have sort of alluded to several times in this uh, episode, and you know, maybe it seems like we're sort of piling on Western uh, approaches to grief, but you know, I think that it, it is sort of a a lack, or it's, it is sort of a, a gap that you know we're seeking to address. Um, you know, what would you say to people who are in communities that aren't very good at grieving, or who aren't very good at lamenting? Um, you know, especially acknowledging that the process of grief can be very isolating at times. Um, you know, what would you suggest to somebody who's maybe not in a community that's able to provide that to them? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is that that unfortunately is very common. Um, I honestly don't know very many communities that are really good at this. And that's why stuff like Alcoholics Anonymous is so helpful because they actually are intentional in creating, uh, and, and, and to be fair, AA isn't perfect. There's the shortcomings of that, but totally, there, there still are things that are very helpful from that. Um, um, so I would start off by saying just normalizing that, so you're not alone in feeling like you're in a community that doesn't really know how to accompany you through that. Um, and the second thing I would say is that when it comes to um, finding, uh, reaching out, and walking with somebody else through our grief. We, you know, as much of a blessing as it would be to have a whole community surround us and walk with us, um, oftentimes in practice, we really just need one or two individuals. We don't need a ton of people. Um, Frankly, most people, a lot of people aren't safe. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I would even argue, suggest against, you know, kind of sharing uh, authentically and vulnerably with a lot of people. I don't think kind of like throwing pearls to pigs it's it's not worth it (laughs) they they, uh do not you know deserve you know to be the the steward of the gift that you're uh, going to give them um 
but just having one or two, I mean, the difference between zero to one is infinite. Having no one to, to accompany you versus just having one person to accompany you. Mm-hmm. That is a world of a difference. And we really only need just a handful. Yeah. Um, and so I'm glad that we're having, you know, this this practical um conversation because as we started out with talking about COVID, you know, this is something that we're all sort of uh going through. Um what's your you know thoughts or your opinions in terms of um you know do we need to grieve every single loss that we experience? You know, especially in this uh sort of unique situation where it almost feels like it's just, you know, when it rains it pours. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, how do we sort of pick and choose, you know, our, where to put our energy, where to put our time, uh, when we just feel overwhelmed or inundated? Yeah, great question. I, I, the short answer to that question is no. We, we don't need to grieve every single loss. Um, I, and uh, another short answer to that question is, uh, you know, how do you tell the difference between the two? The short answer to that would be, well, I think a lot of that depends on how well you know yourself. Um, but that's not very helpful for me to just say that. So let me, you know, uh, kind of put some more flesh and bones to, to that response. Um, a lot of times, um, it's almost like, and I don't think I'm using this term in a precise, uh, in, in a precise way. Um, but in some ways, it's like our soul decides when it wants, what it wants to grieve over and how long we are to grieve over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and our job, uh, even though it's still us, <laughs> is to listen mm-hmm. and to almost like accompany ourselves mm-hmm. through that process and not resist that process. Um, I, I explain to myself and to other people a lot because the process of grief is never fun. So all of, you know, everyone would prefer to like make it as go as fast as possible, right? But the way it plays out in life is that we, we can't really do anything to make grief go faster. But we sure as hell can do a lot to slow it down, <laughs> right? <laughs> So, so really, you know, the name of the game is to make sure that our grief is moving forward according to its own speed, you know, mm-hmm. according to like what I would call it the speed of life. You know, mm-hmm. Life has its own speed. And sometimes we just, no methodology we can follow can make it go any faster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We kind of have to submit to that authority, so to speak. Um, so our job is to accompany ourselves through that process of grief and to make sure we don't get stuck uh, along the way. Yeah. And sometimes after grieving for a period, and I've done, I've seen this uh, in some of the long-term patients that I've worked with um, through trauma histories and grief, long, prolonged grief cycle. There's one individual I had in mind, his grief cycle required, it took us about, a year to a year and a half of him going into his anger, you know? So he just, there's a lot of potential emotions in, in, in grief, but he just kind of stayed in anger for literally a year, a year and a half. 
And for good reason, because there's actually a lot of good reasons, a lot of things that he was angry about. And one thing that he was angry about, once we validated it, it led to another, you know, and we just kept going and kept going. And lo and behold, there's plenty of stuff to get angry about, even after a year and a half. And, um, and in that process towards the end, and it kind of just snuck up on its own. I didn't shape it. He didn't shape it. But we just found that his soul reached a point where it reached a point of saturation. And it had decided for itself, you know, I'm done being angry. And I'll still be, have little anger spurts here and there. But in terms of the overall arc of my recovery process, sure. um, the soul told us that it was done being anger, angry. And then that transitioned to another phase where it was really more centered on feeling sad. And, mm -hmm. uh, over, you know, and that's how he expressed his loss. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it's about observing what the soul wants and what the soul needs mm -hmm. and adjusting ourselves to it. Yeah. If we're not listening, um, and most of us aren't listening to our souls in that way, uh, another way, a pathway that we can follow to discern and guide us into, okay, what things should we grieve about and what things we, uh, shouldn't, that we don't have to, is to look at all the ways that we leak out. Mm -hmm. where um you know i might be minding my own business but just something in my environment something that happened during this day and interaction it just triggered something in my heart and i snapped and i reacted to it and there was a moment where i almost you know i just started reacting unconsciously uh, almost like you know against my own or, or disconnected from my own will you know, like I had an angry outburst and it surprised me. I didn't even know I had had that in me. Totally. Know, if we were to follow that and go, okay, this might be related to this, which might be related to this. And that looks like a loss. Maybe we need to grieve over that because mm -hmm. of the way we're reacting or even overreacting uh, mm -hmm. in our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, sort of the, where did that come from sort of moment? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I love that speed of life idea. You know, anybody who's had any sort of heart to heart with me has probably gotten that line from me. <laughs> I have um, definitely taken that from you and borrowed it on several occasions. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it does sort of speak to, um, you know, almost this image of like you can turn down the dial, but you can't maybe turn up the dial. Uh, you know, you can't make it go faster. Um, or, you know, the other picture I had is, you know, it, you can, um, you know, you can run a race and, and you can run as fast as you can. Uh, you know, there's not anything you can do to run faster than your physical ability, but you can do a whole right. lot of stuff to like trip yourself up or to put hurdles or, you know, uh, was that steeplechase with the water, <laughs> you know, lots of things that can sort of mess you up. So. That's a great analogy. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think another thing that could come up, and I think especially with, um, you know, just the, uh, again, going back to COVID and just how everybody's in a different place and everybody's sort of dealing with their own thing. Uh, you know, I can imagine that something that could be tricky to um, navigate in a community is people being at different places, um, mm -hmm. whether it's situationally uh, or maturity level. 
um, that you know maybe there are some people who do have the capacity to be able to be there for each for another person or to be that safe space or to be that person that can walk alongside be that companion um, but you know I think there's another you know I think there's a lot of voices you know I think you know, maybe in our culture or, you know, a particular subculture that we're in that uh, might feel like we're a burden or that we're burdening other people. Um, so how do you, um, you know, encourage people, you know, at different stages to be there for each other or, or maybe to, you know, on the other side to set healthy boundaries of, okay, maybe I don't have a whole lot to give. Um, you know, how do you navigate this sort of inequality of maybe perhaps where people are and, you know, not to put place blame on any of those people, but just sort of the reality that, you know, everybody's going through their different, their own thing and might have different capacities. Yeah. Great question. And I think even, you know, asking that question and recognizing that we need to take a developmental perspective on this, I think in and of itself, is already such an important intervention because by default, a lot of times we just think of things like this from the perspective of, you know, one size fits all, like everyone should just be in the same spot and everyone should head on to a different spot. And I think one of the um, kind of lasting legacies of Sigmund Freud was to actually um, give us a developmental perspective in terms of the psyche of humans. Um, and even though he had some in my opinion, kind of wacky ideas. Um, I think that long-standing legacy of, hey, we do need to think from a developmental perspective that maybe kids in certain ages and as we grow up that we actually hit different milestones and encounter different challenges and different developmental stages. Uh, I mean, that's that has uh, rung true um, even uh, through the test of uh, empirical research. And the same is true when it comes to us accompanying uh, each other in grief. Um, practically speaking, I think there's one principle that I could point to, um, and that principle is one of um, respect, uh, respecting our limitations and respecting where someone else is at. So if somebody doesn't want to go somewhere, they don't want to go there down the path of grief. Even though we have a very strong, you know, suspicion that if they did, they would really benefit from it, and it'd probably be a really good idea. Um, and I've encountered lots of situations like that where, you know, I'm kind of already treatment planning for my, you know, friends and colleagues and family members, and like <laughs> just for the next, you know, like six months that you'll probably, you know, do really well and, and, and diagnosing know, them and. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I try not to do that, but it's <laughs> a blessing and a curse. Um, and I can envision and connect the dots and see them actually, you know, benefiting. But at bottom, I can't even go to step one because they don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that, you know, barring certain issues that are kind of more extreme, like self-harm, you know, I'm going to kill myself or do something really tragic, um, barring some, you know, important exceptions to the rule. Um, I think as a general principle to follow, um, we have to respect that. Mm. Um, they're not willing and ready to go. I have to respect their volition and their choice to not go there. And 
Um, not only is that informed by just a sense of, you know, humility, a sense of, I want to honor their free will, you know, and respect. Um, but um, the research also suggests that if I force someone to go somewhere that they're not ready to, I'm actually probably going to cause more harm than good. Mm -hmm. And um, and when we get in situations like that, and I know it's tricky uh, and very difficult, especially when it has to do with people that we're close to and that we love, and, we, and we're watching them kind of head into a train wreck, and we want us we want them to not go there, but we but they're kind of bent on you know following through into that train wreck, and it's it's a really difficult situation. I've been in those as well, um, and in those situations. I think it's even going back to our theme of grief. Um, what we're grieving now is not only our friend who's continuing in their path, but we're also grieving our own limitations, you know? And that is so important for me to recognize that I'm not God, I'm not omnipotent. I can't just speak my will and impose it on the world. And even for me, as a what you know, doctorally trained psychologist and you know, kind of a supposed expert in you know, healing people, um, I can't play God. If someone doesn't want to go there, uh, I have to grieve my own limitations and go. You know, I confess that I don't have the power to bypass their will to get mm -hmm. them to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps for a season, I might just have to accept that mm -hmm. that you know, my capacity to help them might be limited but yeah. you know if there's someone that that's important to you i'm still going to stay related to them i'm still going to stay connected to them mm -hmm. but um, but unfortunately i'm going to have to just be able to observe and tolerate um that tension in the meantime yeah. mm -hmm. totally yeah well you know who who thought we could have talked about grief for this long <laughs> um you know, thank you so much for for joining us and and for sharing your thoughts. And you know, I, I think uh, both the um, conceptual, but also you know, I think really the practical. Sure thing. Thank you for tuning in to the Hard Questions No Answers podcast. Still have questions? Oh, good. I was afraid we answered them all. For more information about HQNA podcast, visit drgabelow.com. That's D-R-G-A-B-E-L-O-W-E.com. Additional educational materials recommended by my guests can be found in the podcast tab. And for the updates, news, and behind the scenes, follow HQNA podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HQNA POD. HQNA podcast is independently produced by Gabriel Lowe. Music is Cocktail Fun by Stock Music 331 found on Pond5. And logo design is by Kenny Lowe. Stay tuned for new episodes released each Wednesday. And thank you for joining me on the journey of no answers.